This is the Reading Instruction Show. I'm your host, Dr. Andy Johnson. Topic of today's podcast is the science of reading. The goal is to help you, my dear listener, become a better, more responsible consumer of educational research. So let's take a look at the traditional view of the scientific process. It goes something like this. In this process, you get two groups. You measure them before the study begins. You do something to one group, and you don't do something to the other. You control everything else so that the two groups are as similar as possible. Then after a bit, you measure them to see if there's differences between the two groups. If there are, you can say that the thing you did to the one group was the cause of the difference. Now, many think of this as the scientific method. It's often called controlled experimental research or controlled experimental studies. Here you control all the variables except for one, which would be the treatment or the independent variable. You do this to find out if something was the cause of something else. However, one big idea I want you to take from today's podcast is this. There is no such thing as the scientific method. Rather, there are methods of science. Controlled experimental research is only one of many methods. To insist, that this is the only method of science that can be used to understand reading and reading instruction is to insist that we look at reading reality through a tube. Our view and thus our understanding of reading are greatly impeded, yet this is exactly what the U.S. Department of Education and other groups have done. They have insisted, they have mandated, they have declared that the only knowledge that counts is that which is derived through controlled experimental research. And in reading, they've even given it a label. It's called scientifically based reading research. Sometimes it's called the gold standard. But this insular view of research demonstrates a very limited understanding of educational research. It insists that we look at reading reality through a very narrow people. In thus doing, there's a whole bunch of data that's being missed. And how could anything be truly scientific if it chooses to ignore a wealth of very important data? So, this would be a good place to look at a Biddle research. And we're going to look at a study by Stephen Kosier, K-U-C-E-R. I don't know if I pronounced that correct, but for the purposes of this podcast, I will say Kosier. He did a study looking at word reading accuracy and comprehension. Now, one interesting and important thing to note about this study is it does not fit into the very narrow, teeny-tiny definition of scientifically-based reading research, 
as defined by the U.S. Department of Education. This study would be totally dismissed by those who cling tightly to the people view of educational research. Yet, it has much to tell us to help us understand. So this is a 2016 study. Kosir's study looked at word reading accuracy and comprehension of expository text. Now, it's often assumed that accuracy in identifying words while reading is important. The more accurately you can identify words, so it is thought, the better reader you are. And if students are having trouble reading, well, you just need to do a bit more sounding out instruction to increase their word reading accuracy. Sure, of course, it makes sense. So in this study, Kosir focused on word reading accuracy and comprehension of expository text with fourth graders, expository text or informational books. Starting in fourth grade, students encounter more expository text than narrative text or stories. They're moving from learning to read to reading to learn. And expository texts are a bit different from narrative text. For one thing, <clears throat> there's more lexical density, which is a fancy way of saying more content words and clauses and concepts jammed into a study. <clears throat> For this study, he used fourth grade students from two different schools and he examined their miscues and how they related to comprehension. Now, a miscue in reading is when what students read or say out loud during oral reading does not match what's on the page. For example, when the text says, run to the top of the hill, a reader might say, rat to the top of the hill. Saying rat instead of run is an example of a miscue. We don't call them errors because sometimes miscues are not errors at all, rather mature reading behaviors. Now there are two types of miscues, a meaning disrupting miscue and a meaning maintaining miscue. A meaning disrupting miscue is when the miscued word does not fit within the context of the sentence, and hence the author's intended meaning is disrupted. Rat to the top, instead of run to the top, is an example of this. It doesn't make sense. <clears throat> a meaning maintaining miscue is a miscued word that maintains the author's intended meaning. For example, if the reader were to say rush to the top of the hill or runs to the top of the hill instead of run to the top of the hill, the word identified does not match what's on the page. Yet, the author's intended meaning stays intact. It's a meaning-maintaining miscue. For the study, two different complex expository texts were used. Students read texts out loud. Their oral readings were recorded and their miscues were analyzed. 
retellings were used to assess comprehension and recall. A retelling is when you're asked to recall the essential parts of what you just read. Now, most would think that the clauses in which there were no miscues, in which there were no miscues, where students read words with 100% accuracy, would be more likely to be recalled and comprehended. After all, isn't good reading accurate word reading? However, the results showed that, of course, meaning disrupting miscues are rarely good. That's because they disrupt meaning, and reading is creating meaning with print. But when comparing the clauses with meaning maintaining miscues, with no miscues at all, with 100% word reading accuracy, the clauses in which there were meaning-maintaining miscues were significantly more likely to be comprehended and recalled than those clauses with no miscues at all. So this indicates that for comprehending and remembering what's read, accuracy in maintaining meaning is significantly more important than word reading accuracy. So, to unpack this just a bit, in producing meaning-maintaining miscues, the reader has to generate an alternative way of expressing the same idea. This means they're attending to the deep meaning of the text while reading, more than they're attending to the surface structure or the arrangements of letters within the words. As well, meaning-maintaining miscues tell us that the reader is relying not just on phonics, on letter-sound relationships, but on semantic information, which is the context of the sentence, as well as syntactic information, grammar and word order. This reliance on all three cueing systems is a mature reading behavior. Meaning-maintaining miscues are possible only because the reader is attending to ideas while reading instead of words and letters. So, three things. Number one, an over-reliance on phonics on letter-sound relationships can actually get in the way of comprehending, and that's the whole purpose of reading, is it not? And number two, instructional strategies that focus on maintaining the author's meaning are more important than strategies that focus on word accuracy and speed. But what gets our attention in the early grades? Speed and accuracy. Hmm. Hmm. And the third big idea, we know that the brain uses three cueing systems to recognize words while reading, the semantic cueing system, the syntactic cueing system, and the phonological cueing system, including only strategies and instruction that develop the phonological cueing system, as is done in most skills-based phonics-heavy reading programs, impedes students' development as readers, especially those readers who might struggle with phonics in the first place.
So, I bring this up for a variety of reasons, but for our conversation now, this study would not meet the very narrow, teeny tiny definition of scientifically based reading research as defined by the U.S. Department of Education. Yet studies like this one are essential in helping us understand reading, the reading process, and how the brain creates meaning with print. It's this understanding that enables us to define effective, to design effective reading instruction and intervention. But does this study prove anything? Well, here's another thing about research. Research does not prove things. It supports or doesn't support a hypothesis. Each study provides just a bit of data. These data are used to create theories. Now, a theory is not an untested assumption. A theory, science is used to create theories. A theory, when used in the context of science, is a way to explain a set of facts. Theories are used to understand and explain phenomena. A theory is a dot-to-dot -dot picture connecting a variety of data dots. Each data dot is created by a research study. Different theories connect different data dots differently. Hence, you can have two different theories or theoretical models explaining the same phenomenon differently. In the case of reading, there are two common theories, the bottom-up theory and the interactive theory. One theory connects a lot of data dots and accounts for a wide variety of phenomena. The other one doesn't. The other one ignores many data dots and leaves much phenomena unexplained. So, is one of these theories, bottom-up, interactive, wrong? No, but one theory accounts for much more data. It connects many more data dots than the other, and thus enables a more complete understanding of the phenomena known as human learning and reading. So, research-based programs and methods. Whenever a program or method makes a claim that it is research-based, or when someone says that research proves that something is effective, you must always ask, effective for who? For what purpose? Under what circumstance? How much and for how long? Just saying something is research-based doesn't mean that it is, and it doesn't mean that re the research was very good, and it doesn't mean that the data were correctly collected, measured, or interpreted. Now, some of these research-based, quote-unquote, reading programs may indeed produce a blip in low-level reading scores, but a blip in reading scores does not mean that a student is better able to create meaning with print. These blips often do not transfer into real-life reading situations. What this blip usually means is that 
One, you've taught something. Two, you've measured that something you've taught. And three, you've found more of that something you taught after having taught it. Imagine that. That's like saying, I sprinkled sand on the floor, and after, I found that there was more sand on the floor. But three questions to ask are this. First, as a result of this holy blip, are students better able to create meaning with print? And that's what reading is. It's a meaning-making endeavor, not a sounding-out word endeavor. Does the research-based blip-making reading program improve students' ability to comprehend and make sense of what they're reading? The second thing, over time, is the blip-making program more effective than simply reading and talking about good books or writing and sharing stories or learning skills in authentic reading and writing context? And that is the question. We know any exposure to print is helpful. Even blip-making programs have some impact. The question always comes back to this. Is blip-making more impactful than meaning-making? That's the question. And the third and last question, do blips help children fall in love with books? This has been the Reading Instruction Program. Today we have been looking at the science of reading.